beautiful morning. Isn't this great? Sunshine, one of those beautiful, crisp fall mornings. But uh, yeah, in case you're wondering, uh, yeah, I'm a new face up here. I don't normally attend here. Um, I'm, my name's Richard Fangrad. I'm with Creation Ministries International. And uh, our Canadian office is in Kitchener, Ontario. That's where I come from, so not that far. But um, we're going to talk this morning about creation and evolution. But uh, here's a picture of my family. I've got uh, five kids, four girls, and then a boy. And uh, I used to say that before Josiah came along, the boy there who's the youngest, I used to say that I'm beautifying the world with, with the girls. But I think I can still say that. Josiah's a cute little guy there. So we're having fun there in Kitchener. I've been speaking on this now, traveling across the country for, uh, for 24 years. Spoken to over 800 churches all across Canada. And uh, it's just, it's wonderful to be able to go into churches on Sunday mornings and throughout the week and whenever we do conferences as well, all kinds of things, and tell Christians that they can believe the Bible. That's, that's basically what our speakers do. I'm one of eight speakers. I'm not the only one. But our focus as a ministry is the creation evolution issue. And again, we've got offices in seven countries around the world. One of the things that makes us a little bit different than your average Christian ministry is, as far as we know, we have the most PhD scientists on staff of any Christian organization. And it makes us a little bit different than your average Christian group. And the reason we have scientists on staff is to do the research and do, in a sense, the heavy lifting for us, for the church, to answer the kinds of questions that often come when we, in, when we read through Genesis 1 to 11. Those first, a lot of people have questions in the church in that portion of Scripture. You've got creation, the fall into sin, the flood of Noah, the Tower of Babel, and then Genesis 12, you get to Abraham, and it gets pretty normal after that. But Genesis 1 to 11, a lot of people have questions. And those questions often involve some science, which is why we have scientists on board. We also have an information department. We're an information ministry. We want to get faith-building information out into the church to help you grow in your faith and know that the Bible is true. And that's what I want to do this morning. Our information department subscribes to all the major science magazines that are out there. We keep tabs on the latest scientific observations. And then, and then our speakers and our scientists are informed on that, so we deliver faith-building information to the church. And our speakers travel all over encouraging Christians, encouraging the church, as I said. So, and, and one of the ways we get that faith-building information out is obviously events like this. We travel around and give your pastor a break on a Sunday morning. We've also got a website. Our website looks something like that. There's over 10,000 articles on that website. It's a massive online database of faith-building information. If you have questions, there's a search window in the upper right-hand corner. You can type in whatever question that you might have about Genesis and creation evolution. Uh, you know, how did dinosaurs fit into the Bible? How did Noah get all the animals on the ark? Where did the water come from for a flood? Um, was there an ice age? Where does that fit into the Bible? What about cavemen? What about ape men? What about radioisotope dating? How come we're seeing the light from galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years away if God didn't create that long ago? And where did Cain get his wife if he wasn't able? And, uh, and other questions like that. You might have some questions like that. This is a great place to go to get answers to questions like that. Now, I apologize. The website is, is really long and hard to remember, so I thought maybe we could say this all together. It's creation.com. Ready? Creation. Okay. It's not long and hard to remember. It's the easiest web address that you could think of if you're looking for information on creation for you or your kids, or maybe you're, maybe you're trying to witness to somebody at work or at school. 
who's, who's got all these evidences against creation, and we, we evolved from pond scum millions of years ago, and so on. This is a place you can go to to get great conversation material, to get them thinking that, well, you know what? Maybe the Bible is right, and maybe I ought to turn my attention that direction. Another tool that we have, so we've got speakers, we've got a website. We also have an email news. In our, in our email news, we try to give you the Christian perspective on the latest scientific discoveries. Because you all know that whenever there's some new scientific discovery, it, it's always delivered to us with a nice little evolutionary packaging, right? Here's how this fits with evolution. It has nothing to do with God or the Bible or anything creation, anything like that. We try to give you the Christian perspective. Here's an example of one that went out a number of years ago and involved the discovery of a hadrosaur dinosaur. You can see an artist reconstruction here of what that animal looks like. It wasn't the first one that was found. This is another specimen that was found. That picture you see behind it there, that's some soft and stretchy tissue that they were pulling out of its unfossilized bones. An evolutionist dated that animal to have died 80 million years ago. We thought that was interesting. Maybe you think that's interesting too. How can there still be soft tissue in the bones if it's 80 million years old? Has to be some pretty good Tupperware there to have that. Something isn't lining up, right? That's the kind of thing that we do in our email news. And so if that sounds interesting to you, there's some sign-up sheets that look like this. If we could start those around at this point, um, you know what to do. Put your name and email address on there, and I'll make sure you get on that list. It's a simple, free little thing that you can do to start getting some of this information into your home. So, yeah, we can start those around. I'm not going to pause for that. You can circulate those among yourselves and just pass them back, and uh, we'll get on with our topic here this morning. And I've sort of titled this Biblical Creation, Science, and Your Spiritual Growth. Now, you might, you might have expected those first two. Yeah, Biblical Creation and Science, since you've got a CMI speaker here this morning. But spiritual growth? How, how does that fit with those other ones? It's like one of these things doesn't belong. So we'll get to creation and science in just a second. Let's start with spiritual growth. Let's actually start with that one. And what is spiritual growth? Just If you kind of want a textbook definition of it, spiritual growth is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, right? And we're all involved in that process. We're all at different stages. And it's characterized by increasingly living lives that conform to the truths in God's Word. In other words, you're becoming more spirit-filled. The truths of God's Word are being applied to your life and your thinking and your behavior. As you grow spiritually, you'll see more of that in your life. You're becoming more spirit-filled. And greater discernment. You'll be able to discern over time between things that are... And and, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian age a preacher and over, over in England, his nickname was the Prince of Preachers. He said, discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. As today, people can't, can't even get right from flat out wrong figured out. But we, we want to, as we grow spiritually, we'll be able to discern. I mean, we live in an information age, all kinds of information out there, and discernment is a, is a good tool for us to have as believers, right? And a more solid faith. As we grow spiritually, we, under, we, we, we allow, you know, don't allow storms of life to in, interrupt our lives and our walk with Christ. We have a more solid faith. And believers should desire spiritual growth. You might think, well, I'm a believer, and this is optional, you know, spiritual growth. You know, it, actually, people have said, if you're not growing, you're dead. So <laughs> that's, that's one way to put it. But I, I think it's interesting the way Peter describes how we, as I'm going to assume most of us are Christians here this morning, maybe not everybody, that's okay, 
but Christians are to desire to grow closer to our Lord and Savior. And Peter says it this way, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, by God's word, you may grow in respect to salvation, spiritual growth, right? And I just think it's interesting that Peter uses the analogy of how a newborn baby desires milk. Have you had newborn baby? I've had five of them in our household. And uh, a, newborn, a newborn baby doesn't wake up at 2 a.m. And, and think, oh, I, I won't make a peep now. I, I, I won't scream for milk now. I'll wait till 7 or maybe 7.30. I'll let my poor mother get her rest. It's, that's, that's not how it works, right? It's kind of like, I want milk, and I want it now. Isn't it interesting that that's the analogy that Peter uses for how we, as Christians, are to desire to grow closer to Christ? Spiritual growth. So we're to desire it. Interesting. And here's some other verses that we can think of. Just thinking about spiritual growth and so on. Romans 12, famous verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're to think differently as Christians. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't conform to the world. Conform to Christ in our thinking, how we think, how we reason, how we see the world our worldview, and train your mind to be able to discern God's will. Again, there's those concepts brought out in that verse. So how does spiritual growth, how do these things relate to our main subject here this morning, creation and science and those kinds of things? Well, let's have, have a look at just one more uh, passage in Scripture. Paul writing to the Ephesians here, he says, God gave, he, he gave, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... So God gave different people with different abilities. He's talking about the body of Christ later on in Ephesians 4, with different abilities to the church. And as far as our, as far as our context this morning is, we'd probably be in that teacher's category. CMI and, and what I'm going to do this morning, I'll teach in a particular area of Scripture that will hopefully be encouraging in your faith and so on. We'll, we'll see as we go on here. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, spiritual growth. All of these different aspects, these different abilities that the church has within the church body are to grow us closer to our Lord and Savior and reach others for Him, obviously. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Be nice to have more unity, wouldn't it? Sometimes the church is a little fractured here and there, and we're, we're saddened over that, but that, that's, a, that's a part, a benefit, a part of spiritual growth. As we grow closer to God, we grow closer to each other. That's a great benefit. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, here's one of the amazing benefits of spiritual growth. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's a great benefit. We have a more solid faith. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, spiritual growth, into, in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. So there's, there's some other thoughts on spiritual growth. So let's, let's, let's dive into these other subjects now. And uh, actually, before we get that, let's just, let's just go back just for a second to Ephesians 4 here. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know what? Evolution 
and this notion of millions of years is a massive, deceitful scheme. And, and some of you might be thinking, is it? Is it really? How is that a deceitful scheme? And, and, and it is, and I'll, I'll explain that in a few minutes here. And this participating effect, the negative effect on the church. And to illustrate that, there are surveys that have been done in the church over a number of years. The percentage of people leaving the church, mostly young people, you might be familiar with some of these surveys. For example, George Barna, Barna Research Group down in the States back in 2006, 61% of 20-somethings, he says, will leave the church. Does that not blow your mind? Well over half, and these are kids that grow up in Christian homes, they have Christian moms and dads, they go to Sunday school, they know the Bible stories, and it doesn't help. They, they get out from underneath mom, maybe in their early 20s, go off to college, university, that kind of thing, and they're on their own, and church, gone. They're gone. Incredible. Assemblies of God did a survey, 66% is what they found, the same same ballpark as the Barna study there. Lifeway Research, another group in the States, 70% is what they found. They found that a percentage eventually come back. Well, that's good news, right? The largest denomination in the U.S. is the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention. They did a survey back in 2002, 88% is what they found. Unbelievable. These are all American surveys. I was speaking a few years ago to a church in Charlottetown, PEI, uh, out in Anne of Green Gables land there, and it was a PAOC church, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. That's a fairly large denomination here in our country. And after the service, the pastor said, well, we've recently done a survey in the PAOC. You know what they found? 90%. I had, I had thought initially that Canadian stats would probably be better, but that, that one shocked me, that we're actually worse than denominations in the U.S. What's going on here? I mean, we might, these numbers border on just being unbelievable. Like, like, like we're thinking, there's got to be something wrong with those surveys. And, and we could legitimately dismiss these high numbers if the majority of surveys like this returned results of, say, say 3% or 5% or 15% or something like that. But that's not what's happening. Survey after survey gives these incredibly high numbers. If we can't figure out, as Christian parents and grandparents and church leaders... What is causing this and some type of a reversal to figure out how to reverse these trends, we're in big trouble, right? Well, I'd like to suggest that I believe these results reveal a breakdown in spiritual growth, in the spiritual growth of, of primarily young people, because that's what the surveys focus on. Now, that might seem like a, a huge statement to make, and it is, linking these survey results to a breakdown in spiritual growth. Let me, let me take a few minutes and back that up. I'll give you the reasoning behind that. If we think of spiritual growth, we can think of it as a scale, right? And every, every one of us is at a different place in our walk with Christ, a different stage. And we can think of different stages. As we move closer to Christ, we can think of, well, what might the other end of that look like? That might be the God-hater. Somebody who just hates God, right? They don't believe that he exists, but they hate him anyway, kind of thing. But, and, and you run into these folks on, on Facebook and, and YouTube or whatever. You put up a Christian post or a Christian video or something, and the haters come out. You know, what are you, you Christians, you don't know what you're talking about, etc., etc. Or you might have these folks at school if they find out you're a Christian or at work or whatever. That's one stage of spiritual growth, not very advanced. But, uh, and we can think of other stages. And maybe there's some of you here this morning that just hate God. 
and you're just here kind of exploring or whatever, but we can think of other stages as we move along closer to Christ. For example, the questioning non-believer, somebody who's not a Christian, but they're, but they're out there thinking, hmm, you know, what, what is this Christianity thing all about? You know, did, did Jesus really die and come back to life after three days? And so that's the payment that he made for my sins. And how, how does that work? And they've got quest, you've got questions about that. And you're investigating. They're a little different stage than the, the person who's just very antagonistic. The thing is, that is a normal part of spiritual growth. A normal part of spiritual growth is having questions about the accuracy of the Bible. There's probably many of you, maybe most of you here this morning have questions about portions of the Bible anyways, that, you know, can we really trust the, is it really God's word there? And Genesis 1 to 11 is a lot of, is a place where many people ask that kind of question. But that's normal. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, your kids are going to go through a phase in their spiritual life where they question the authority of the Bible, where they question whether or not they can trust it. It's normal. Don't panic if you're their parents. No, no, little Johnny's asking questions about the Bible, and he's... he's, it, It provides an opportunity for you, parents and grandparents, to supply them with information. Go look up the answer to that question or have, have little Johnny or little Susie or whatever look up the answers themselves and, and, and move on. You, you can help. That's a normal part of spiritual growth. And, and then we want them to move past that to the point where they know that the Bible's true. Yes, I know that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I'm investigating other parts of Scripture. And, and the thing is, that's a normal part of spiritual growth as well as you move on. A normal part of spiritual growth is getting questions is getting answers, rather, to questions that hinder faith. That's normal if, you, if you're growing spiritually. And then, of course, we want people to move on past that, and they make Christ Lord of their lives, and then, and then the, it continues past that as we grow closer to our Lord and Savior. The thing is, many people never get there, and they end up becoming one of these survey results. So what happened? Why don't they get there? It's because of the questions often. This is what we found, speaking for many, many years all over the country and around the world, our different speakers. People have questions. Well, how did dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Well, science disproves the Bible anyways, doesn't it? How did Noah fit all the animals on the ark? And the Bible's full of contradictions. What about carbon dating? What about ape men? Where does the Ice Age fit into the Bible? The Bible can't explain that, I bet, right? Huh? And those questions don't get answered and end up throwing up a barrier that hinders further spiritual growth. And the questions never get answered, and they end up becoming one of those survey results. They grew up in the church, didn't get answers to those questions. There are answers to those questions, but they didn't get them. And they begin to feel after a little while that questions like this are just unanswerable. And therefore, the Bible must be wrong. And at that point, when, when, it, when a young person or, or even an older person reaches that point in their thinking where, where they know, quote-unquote, that the Bible's wrong, why would they keep coming to church? It, it doesn't even make sense, does it? You're going to come to a place on Sunday morning where they teach from the Bible and sing songs that are based on the Bible, but the Bible's wrong? Why would you keep it? It doesn't even make sense, right? They become one of those surveys. Those, those, those statistics, those survey results. So there are some challenges that we have in the church today. There's no doubt we have challenges. There's a lot of good things too, but there's some challenges. We have the massive loss of, of primarily young people and others as well. You know that Christians are now the most persecuted group. Of all the groups around the world, the way you can group people, Christians are now the most persecuted. 
And there's, there's people that are saying, in, in, I mean, it's not, it's not physical persecution yet here in Canada. I think that's coming. But um, people, people around here say, for example, if you teach your kids creation, that's child abuse. You're abusing your kids because we know that we evolved from pond scum. So if you teach your kids that, that, that they were created by some omnipotent being, you're lying to your kids. You're abusing your children. And there's, there's, there's people that say things like that. So we have that kind of persecution. They call us names. However, it's a great time to be a Christian. Despite all of these things, it's a great time to be a Christian. There is a massive amount of support for our faith. Our faith as Christians is not a blind faith. We don't need to turn a blind eye to logic and science and reason and so on. It's reasonable to be a Christian. It's logical to be a Christian. It's good to be a Christian. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. There are other faiths that are blind faiths. There's, there's, there's no evidence for believing some of these things. That's not Christianity. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And there are answers to questions that hinder faith. Parents, grandparents, if your kids are asking you some of these questions, get the answers to them. It's very important to help them grow, grow, grow spiritually. Now, to, to understand all of this, see, many people have questions, talking about faith-hindering questions, about the creation-evolution issue. So let's consider some evidences for that portion of Scripture, the portions of Scripture, Genesis and other places where it talks about creation. Now, first, we need to understand the nature of the origins debate. What is it all about? Because the popular perception out there is that it's science versus religion, Right? You may have heard it phrased that way, or you get, you get that flavor when you read some article on evolution that tries to talk about creation as well. Well, if you, if you believe in creation, that's, that's not scientific. That's just warm, fuzzy feelings, and it's about God and the Bible, and it's, it's not scientific. If you, if you want science, if you're into science and facts and that kind of thing, well, then you're, you're in the evolution camp and so on. You know what? It's not science versus religion. There's no debate about the science at all. There's zero debate. Because science involves making observations, doesn't it? Think back to your science classes and so on. Science involves other things as well, but primarily observations. You go out into the field, you observe certain things in the physical world, in the living world, and so on. Or in a lab, you do an experiment, get the same result over and over again. Science involves those kinds of things, and nobody debates those things. If you disagree that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius... At, at standard atmosphere and temperature and pressure, then if you disagree with that, what can you do? You can go do an experiment. You can observe the results, right? No disagreement there. The branches of science that relate to origins, that relate to where we came from, involve a mixture of science and history. It's, it's not the science that's debated, it's the history. And it's a mixture involved. There. It's a lot like forensic science. You know what forensic science is? Most people know that from TV, right? It's like, it's, I hardly watch TV anymore. I don't know about you guys, but I, every show seems to be the same show, right? It starts off, da-da-da-da, dead body, right? And then, you know what I mean, and then it's CSI, right? Crime scene investigation. And, and the science in forensic science is you dust for fingerprints. You get DNA samples. Oh, there's, there's blood on the floor over there, and there's a knife laying here, and there's some shoe prints over here. And, and that's the science, and nobody disagrees with that. But then you make a story that fits the data, right? And, and there, that's, that's history. And there, there can be different stories. Some histories will fit better than others, will fit the data better than others. And that's where you have at the end of the TV show the courtroom scene, right? It's the butler did it. No, the maid did it. 
right? You have different histories applied to to try to explain the data. And paleontology, geology, astronomy, and so on, those things are in the same camp as forensic science. I'll give you an example. Paleontology, when someone finds a fossil, it doesn't come with a nice little tag on it like this that says, hi, I'm 75 million years old and my favorite color is blue and I like to eat spaghetti and I like long walks on the beach at sunset with my sweetie. None of that data comes with a fossil. We could think of the fossil itself as the science, as the data that you can go and observe. You could, oh, look, there's a fossil, it's in a rock, and nobody disagrees with that. It's a fossil in some rock. Yeah? Nobody disagrees with that. And you can, under a microscope, you can examine it very carefully. You can document all kinds of things, examine the, the sediment that it has been entombed within. You can do all kinds of observational evidence on, observations on that, examine it very closely. But what makes the fossil interesting, what gives it value, isn't so much the science, it's the history that's applied to it. When did this animal die? What did it eat when it was alive? How fast did it run? What was its social interaction with those other animals over there? And then the fossil becomes a little more interesting, right? But that's not science. That's not observed. N nobody is observing when the thing died. N nobody's observing what it ate. It's dead. It's not eating anything, right? It's, and there are some histories that will fit the data better than others. This died 75 million years ago. Well, this died 700 years ago. How do you know? Some histories will fit better than others. So it's a lot like, creation evolution is a lot like forensic science. At a foundational level, the whole origins debate, the nature of the origins debate is a battle between two different histories. That's what the whole thing boils down to. And we can summarize those two different histories. Start with the evolutionary history that starts about 13.8 or so billion years ago, we're told, with the Big Bang, cosmic evolution. You've all heard of the Big Bang, right? The Big Bang goes something like this. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. And I'm serious. The physicists that write papers on the Big Bang nowadays, that's exactly the way they describe it. There was absolutely nothing, and then through some quantum fluctuation, big fancy terms, you have this huge amount of energy, and that energy converts into matter, and, and then hydrogen gas, and maybe some helium, and after a while you get dust particles, and then pebbles, and asteroids, and planets, and stars, and so on, and it moves on past there. And then about 4.6 billion years ago, our own solar system and planet Earth forms from a spiraling, collapsing dust cloud, and you get a hot, molten Earth. And then millions of years go by again. The Earth eventually cools down enough to get water on the Earth, rain and rivers and ocean and that kind of thing. And in a warm little pond millions of years ago, lifeless chemicals come together to form the first living cell. That's abiogenesis or chemical evolution. And that first living cell goes on to develop into all the life we see on the planet today, including you and me. That's biological evolution. That's what most people think of when you say evolution. It's that stage in that history. And the final step in that history, humans from an ape-like ancestor. There's one version of history. It's very popular. It's taught to all of our kids in, in school, and it's also in the media. It's everywhere. You can't go on a hike anywhere and see a sign that uh, it talks about millions of years. But there's another history. God creates one, two, three, four, five, six. Then at the end of that... Here's a key event in the history of the universe. God describes his initial creation as very good. Initially, the creation was very good. Is the creation very good today? No. You might look outside and say, yeah, that's pretty good. But there's, but there's a remnant of that very good world, right? We had a beautiful sunrise this morning, and, and there, there, there is a remnant of that there, but there's also very bad things. 
There's evil people that do evil things. That's called moral evil. And then there's what's called natural evil. Earthquakes, tsunamis, mudslides that kill people, diseases like cancer and leukemia, all kinds of terrible diseases that cause pain and kill people. So what happened to God's very good creation? This happened. Adam sinned. And that made Apple computers. Or, no, I'm a PC guy, right? But Adam sinned, and that brought death and suffering into the world. And that's how we can, we can answer, beginning with that history, one of the biggest questions that's out there, why is there death and suffering? Well, God is not the author of that. That's a result of sin. We're living in a world that has been cursed. This is not the world that God created. The world that God created, there would not have been suffering and pain. And most of you probably know, the Bible talks about in Revelation, it talks about the world that is to come. And what it, what's, what's it going to have? No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more curse. The very good world is going to come back. But we're stuck here in the middle. And we need to deal with it. So history moves on. If we can summarize that biblical history, Genesis 6 to 9, we read about a global flood. That was a major event in the history of the world, dramatically reshaping the surface of the planet. And then many years later, we get to the central events, the whole history of the Bible, the whole history of the universe, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And we get to celebrate again. Christmas is coming up. We get to celebrate God becoming one of us, an amazing, amazing miracle, uh, becoming one of us, uh, eventually to die and pay the price of death for sin on our behalf for all those who believe. So there's the two different histories. And it's a battle. The whole origins debate is a battle between those different histories. And if you walk away with just one thought this morning, it's understand the nature of the origins debate. It's not science versus religion. It's a battle between those different histories. And now we've put a starting time uh, on the first history. What, do we have a starting time for the other one there? If we look at the Bible and other historical cues and so on, and many people have, have done that, you know what? About 4,000 B.C. is when God started that off. And it's just ballpark figures, and we can play with that a little bit back and forth. So the earth is about 6,000 years old. And if this is the first time you've heard that, you're likely thinking, no, it's not. Because everybody knows the earth is millions of years old. And that was my reaction the first time somebody told me, yeah, according to the Bible, if you reason it, or if you can deduce from Scripture that the earth is about 6,000 years old. That's what, that was my reaction. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Everybody knows the earth is old. And as bizarre as that might sound, again, if this is the first time you've heard that, there have been an amazing number of scientists and historians and researchers who've undertaken to do a study of how old is this earth? When did God kick the whole thing off? I've got kind of a three-page table here of people who've done that, and, and you can see the dates they came up with. Um, a lot of them around 4,000 BC. Even Johann Kepler, here he is here, a famous scientist did a chronology, came up with a creation date of 3993 B.C. Very interesting. Even scientists are in that list. So you're in good company if you believe that the earth is around 6,000 years old. But anyways, there's those two different histories. And if we try to figure out, well, which one is the correct history then? It's like that courtroom scene at the end, right? The butler did it. No, the maid did it. Here we've got evolution over millions of years or creation by God. Well, how do you determine which one is correct? How do you know? How can you figure? There's one way to figure that out. You can ask the question, which history fits best? Which history provides the best framework for understanding the observations from the scientific world? 
And we can, we can actually, let, let's, we can look at some scientific observations and we'll keep track of our progress here with this little chart. We'll look at, look at some scientific observations and see which history, biblical history or the evolutionary history, provides the best framework for understanding those observations. And you, you, we'll do a few examples. You'll see how this goes here. A scientific observation. Let's start with the Earth's magnetic field is decaying over time. And this has been measured this is a scientific observation. It's decaying at about 5% per century. And that's verified, it's confirmed by archaeological measurements. Things that are about 1,000 years old indicate that the magnetic field was about 40% stronger about 1,000 years ago. That's a very interesting scientific observation. Which history fits best? Now, if you go backwards in time, the magnetic field would be stronger, Right? And you can go back to about 10,000 years ago, only 10,000 years ago, not that long, the magnetic field at that point would have been so strong, it would have started to melt the earth. <laughs> Which history fits best? Biblical history is the clear winner, right? That evolutionary history says the earth is 4.6 billion years old. The earth would melt, would be sizzled away. If, if, if the extrapolation if you, is warranted and so on. But there's an example. That's how we play this game. And you can do this every time. And you teach your kids to do this. Every time there's some new scientific observation, get them to ask the question, which history fits best? And the biblical history often provides by far the superior framework for understanding those observations. Let's do a few more here. The erosion of the continents. Rivers are like freight trains constantly taking sediments from the continents to the ocean bottoms, 24-7, month after month, century after century. The average height reduction for all the continents as a result of erosion is 6 centimeters per 1,000 years, about 24 billion tons of sediment a year. Now, at that rate, the continents would have been eroded down flat with sea level after only 10 million years. But the evolutionary history says the continents are two and a half billion years old. Well, it doesn't fit with their history, does it? Now, 10 million years? Well, the continents are still here, so it means they must be much younger than 10 million years. You know what? It fits with biblical history. I love being a Christian. Isn't this great? This is fun. Let's, let's do another one. Uh, supernova remnants. You know, you know what a supernova is? Supernova, okay, yeah, some of you, supernova remnant. Supernova is a star that's exploded. Stars become unstable after a while, they, they blow up. And a supernova remnant is what's left over after the star blew up. And it forms often some beautiful pictures in space. This is a supernova remnant. That's a crab nebula there for those of you who are into astronomy. You can see some of these pictures here on the Hubble Space Telescope website. It's beautiful objects in space that are supernova remnants, what's left over after the star blew up. Now, we can make some predictions Looking at our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there are different stages of supernova remnants. First stage, second stage, third stage. The third stage are the very oldest, very largest supernova remnants. And if the galaxy, if we go with the, with the Big Bang notion and millions of evolution over millions of years, the predictions are there, but the predictions are very different if the Bible's history is anywhere close to being accurate. Look at that. Predictions are very, very different. We really shouldn't be seeing any of those third stage, the very largest, very oldest supernova remnants. Now if we turn to the astronomers, okay, what are you seeing in your telescopes? Here's the data. The Milky Way is not billions of years old. 
If, if you're going to continue to believe by faith in the evolutionary history, Big Bang and so on, this has been going on for millions of years, now you've got to come up with some sort of a clever band-aid explanation as to why we're not seeing any of the third stage supernova remnants in the Milky Way. But if you're a Christian, and we just go with what Scripture says and, and what can be logically deduced from Scripture, that data, it fits beautifully. Wonderful. I love being a Christian. It makes so much sense, right? I, I, think I may have said that once or twice already, but it's great. Let, let's do some more. Dinosaurs. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, your kids want to know about dinosaurs, right? And oftentimes we think, well, if you believe in dinosaurs, you've got to believe in evolution because dinosaurs just beautifully fit with evolution. Do they? Scientists have made mind-blowing discoveries in the field of dinosaurs over the last 15 years or so. There's been more than 40 instances of soft tissue found in dinosaur bones, soft and stretchy tissue, blood vessels and blood cells from a number of different specimens. This is from a T-Rex here, a Tyrannosaurus rex, blood vessel with a blood cell in it. Different kinds of dinosaur proteins have been analyzed in the bones, including histones. That's a type of protein associated with forming the double helical structure of DNA. And little bits of dinosaur DNA have been discovered. Not enough to have Jurassic Park all over again, so you, you might get that song in your head again now. But it, 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 Incredible scientific observations made in the field of dinosaurs. Which history fits best? <laughs> and remember, if you, you all know that dinosaurs supposedly died out, according to evolution, 65 million years ago or so. Well, obviously these ones didn't, right? Again, they've got to have some really amazing Tupperware to explain that. But dinosaurs beautifully fit with biblical history. Let's do one more. Canyon formation. Now, we think of canyons. I don't know if you've ever visited Grand Canyon. I was there uh, this, this summer with my family. And uh, canyon formation, we're often told, well, that fits with millions of years. It takes all kinds of time to form some of these beautiful canyons that we have around the world. Here's Bryce Canyon. And... Uh, uh, if we think about canyon formation, let's think a little more deeply about canyon formation, no pun intended. But um, here's, here's, this is called the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. And if we think about canyon erosion, we're often told that the rivers, like this one here, <coughs> form canyons. The rivers erode the canyons. Well, obviously, larger rivers, like this one, are going to erode canyons faster, right? Faster than, for example, this, uh, this, this river here. So more water means faster canyon erosion. Okay. C can you folks think of anything within biblical history where there may have been more water on the surface of the earth which then drained off the earth? Well, biblical history includes a time when there was much more water, doesn't it? Could, could that figure into canyon erosion, explaining some of these canyons, not involving the river, not involving millions of years? Maybe. Do we have examples today of canyons that formed quickly, not as a result of river erosion, but of something more catastrophic? Yes, we do. Here's a canyon. Uh, this, this is about 600 feet across and 150 feet deep. That formed in one day. That's a one-day canyon. This is a picture from the base of Mount St. Helens in southern Washington State. I mean, what happened to produce this canyon in a day? 
mountains and houses a volcano. What happened was the volcano erupted. There was ice and snow up on top of the mountain that melted very quickly, and that produced a mud flow that came through this area at twice highway speed, carving out that canyon. Or maybe highway speed, depending on how fast you folks drive around here. But um, in, in any case, it was a rapid event. And then the river formed. See, I don't know if you can see it from the back, but there's a little stream running down that canyon. And if we came to that canyon today, we might suppose that the river carved the canyon. But we'd be dead wrong. The river wasn't even there before the canyon was there. The reason there's a river there today is because when it rains, the rainwater collects in the canyon and, and it forms a stream. But the stream had nothing to do with its formation. Very interesting. If we look at the sidewalls of this canyon here, the, uh, the, the, see that layer between the yellow dotted lines, about 15 feet thick there, grows to 20 feet thick in some other places, but there's a, there's a person down there for scale. That was laid down, that middle section, in about three hours on June 12, 1980, again as a result of an eruption of the volcano. Now, what blue geologists' minds is when they had a close-up view of that layer. Here's a close-up view. Look at that fine layering. Geologists are used to thinking of those layers, maybe one or two of them being laid down a year, two layers a year. And yet here, there's dozens of layers within just a few inches in a sequence that was deposited in three hours. <laughs> it's incredible, some of the things that happen around Mount St. Helens. And yet, Mount St. Helens is, is just, it's just a... A, a volcano and a mud flow did some pretty interesting things. But if a little mud flow can do interesting things like this, what could a global flood do? On a much bigger scale, you might end up with something like Grand Canyon. And there's Bible-believing scientists that are reasoning along those lines. So canyon formation, as it turns out, fits biblical history much better, specifically with a global flood. The flood is the key to understanding the age of the earth. And I actually had the, the opportunity to go whitewater rafting through Grand Canyon for five days, rafting down the river, sleeping underneath the, underneath the stars beside the river at night. Uh, some incredible, incredible whitewater there in the canyon. Uh, extreme sports is what they call that. There's even a DVD up here somewhere, rafting the Grand Canyon, featuring a lot of the pictures of the rocks and fossils we examined to see clues for catastrophic deposition and catastrophic erosion of the canyon. Clues in the canyon that point not to river erosion over millions of years, but point to a global flood. Grand Canyon, it's a great evidence for a global flood. You know, the flood is the key to understanding this, this contentious issue of the age of the earth. There's probably some of you, maybe, maybe more than just some of you here this morning who think, yeah, I know God created, but he did it over millions of years. You're blending those ideas together, and you think, how, I, how could God possibly create recently? I don't get that. How, how could that happen? And if this, if this is you, if that's, if that's where you're at in your, in, in, in your spiritual growth or whatever, if that's one of the stumbling blocks or things you're thinking about, think very carefully about what a global flood could accomplish in a very short period of time. It's the key to understanding the age of the earth, really. A flood would have aged the earth, if you know what I mean. It didn't actually make it older. It just accelerated those aging processes. It's the key to understanding the age of the earth. But let's think just a little bit more deeply about those rock layers there. Those rock layers have things in them. Fossils, right? Things that used to be alive and are now dead. And scientists examining the fossil record, they've, they've found all kinds of interesting things in the fossil record. They've obviously found dead things. They've also found uh, living things in pain that have died in pain. All kinds of diseases have been discovered in the fossil record, osteoporosis, TB, cancer, all kinds of other things there, extinction, carnivorous activity, fossil thorns, and fossil humans, very high in the fossil record. 
So let's think even more deeply about the fossil record and relate this now to biblical history. Let's under, understand the world around us from a biblical perspective. And I just, if I just throw out this question, where do the fossils fit? In biblical history, I mean, where do they fit in biblical history? Well, the fossil record captured the results of a cursed world, right? Not, not a very good world, a cursed world. That gives us a clue as to where they might fit. Let's, let's put up a, a snippet here of biblical history. Where do the fossils fit, knowing what's in them, what scientists have discovered there? Well, they fit here. A global flood, as it turns out, is a great mechanism for producing a global fossil record because things have to be rapidly buried before they rot in order to become fossils. And then other things have to take place. But if you have a global flood and you have a global fossil record, that's, that's a good match. It works really well. And then when we read verses in Genesis 3 like this, for example, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, that's good. We're, we're good with that. We're fine with that. Because the thorns and thistles were not a part of the original very good creation, right? They weren't there. They were produced here. Genesis 3, we read about that. The ground is now going to produce thorns and thistles. And then that's captured in the fossil record after sin and death enter the world. It's fine. It all makes sense. And then we come across verses like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, back here, talking about the first Adam, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Jesus, who's existed forever, who's actually the creator, he, about 2,000 years ago, becomes human to pay the price of death for our sins. So the first Adam here, because of his sin, brings death into existence. So there's a link between sin and death. The wages of sin is death. You know this, right? Nothing new here this morning. The wages of sin is death. And then the last Adam, that's Jesus' nickname, pays the price of physical death, because that's the price for sin, pays the price of physical death to redeem us of our sins. And it all works out. But here's where it gets a little more tricky. People say, no, 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 that's not where the fossils go. The fossils are millions of years old. They go here. The fossils have been laid down slowly over millions of years. Huh, okay. Well, then what does that do to biblical history there? Well, then, then about 6,000 years ago, God declared his creation very good. But if the fossils were already there, that, then it's not very good. Cancer, diseases, pain, violent death, all very good? Of course not. God could never call the things in the fossil record very good. So we have to explain that out of Scripture somehow. And then what about that next one there? It was supposed to be Adam's sin that brought the transition from very good to not very good. But if there's been death and suffering and, and carnivorous activity, all kinds of terrible things, violent death for millions of years, then that transition has nothing to do with bringing death into existence. Death has always been here, so we've got to get that out of Scripture as well. Then what about a global flood? Well, if the flood didn't produce the fossil record, then we have to say, well, it wasn't the global flood. We, we have to say it's a little flood. Little, little local flood over in ancient Mesopotamia, something like that, because a global flood would rip up all of the fossil record and redeposit it if the fossils were already there. So we kind of have to reason that out of Scripture. Now, what about that last one? Well, we, wanna, we don't want to cross that one out. That's the central teachings of our faith. And yet, if Adam never existed, or if we came from eight people, or if there's been death and suffering for millions of years before Adam ever sinned, then there's really no link between sin and death. Death was around before sin. It's all backwards. So then Jesus didn't die to pay for our sins. 
By breaking the link between sin and death, the central teaching, the main teaching of Christianity is destroyed. This is not a minor issue. If we get this wrong, it ends up destroying. If you work the logic through, and I've gone through this very quickly the last five minutes here. If you work the logic through, excuse me, you end up destroying the central teachings of our faith. It's not a fine point. And you know what? Even atheists understand that you can't blend these two ideas together. There's a famous debate between William Lane Craig and an atheist back in actually 79, a long time ago. The atheist said this, and, and watch the logic as he goes through here. The logic, the logic works. His starting premise is way off, but his starting premise is, now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. But follow his logic through here. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a, no need of a Savior. And I submit that puts Jesus historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. And he's right. I mean, he's an atheist, he's wrong, but he's, he's being consistent. You can work the logic through. But this is what works. The fossils are, that, that produces a consistent biblical worldview. And understanding the fossil record formed primarily as a result of a global flood is an important part of developing a Christian worldview, a consistent biblical worldview. And when we have a consistent biblical worldview, we have a solid foundation for the gospel. We don't have that out for the atheist there. The atheist can see the problem of blending millions of years with the Bible and so on. We see that evidences from God's world support God's word. Which history fits best? Biblical history is, is by far the superior explanation for science, for things that are being seen in the world around us. And then we're not tossed to and fro by these falsehoods surrounding the origins debate and think we can stand solid on the word of God, knowing that it's true, and live our lives according to that truth. That's where we want to get to. These questions that many people have that are hindrances to faith that lead perhaps some of them, perhaps a lot of them, to reject Christianity, to leave the church when they get into their 20s or something, there's answers to those things when we have a consistent biblical worldview and we can move on. We can become Christians and get to the point where we know that God's word is true. Get, and that's where we want to get to. Get to the point where you know God's word is true. Get answers to questions that are hindering your spiritual growth. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, how are your kids doing? Are, are they on the trail to becoming one of these survey results? We've got to do better. Let's, let's equip them to the point where they're not going to leave the church. They're not going to leave Christianity, but continue in their walk with Christ. I'm going to make some suggestions here. Our time is gone. I'm going to make some suggestions. If, if there are some here who are interested in getting a little bit more of, of what we've kind of been introducing here this morning, my number one suggestion would be get Creation Magazine into your home. It's a quarterly magazine, comes out four times a year, not monthly, because we're all busy. It's a family magazine, which means you don't need a PhD to understand the articles. It doesn't mean that it's for kids. Some of the articles are going to be a wee bit more technical. You're going to have to apply yourself. But it's meant to be a family magazine, not an overly technical magazine. Great faith-building articles, page after page. There's no paid ads. Every page is filled with faith-building information to help you see Areas that support what the biblical text says about history, about the world, about creation. 
Amazing. I think it's our number one equipping tool. And if that sounds interesting, if you want to sign up for that, here's how it works. It's 750 that's billed automatically to either your bank account or credit card every three months. And it goes on for as long as you want. You can cancel any time. This is not a fixed term, like a phone contract or any of that kind of nightmare. Cancel any time. What you get is you get an actual hard copy, obviously a hard copy of the magazine, plus a digital copy that you can flip through online, uh, you can share it on up to five devices, your smartphone, your laptop, your desktop, that kind of thing. If you sign up this morning, I'll give you your first issue for free. You start reading this afternoon, pull out a lawn chair, open up the pool again, and, and uh, start reading this afternoon. Great articles there. Encourage you in your faith and your walk with Christ. That's not all. You also get a free DVD. So if you want to sign up for that, there's some sign-up sheets that look like this, and we could fire those around just as I wrap up here. That would be great. What you want to do is just tear off the lowest one, they're, they're double-sided. Fill in the front with your address information and the back with your payment information. You just fill in either, again, bank account or credit card, and all you need to do is drop it off at the table over here. That's where you get your free stuff up here. Just drop it off, and then you're, you're off to lunch there. Now, as those go around, uh, they're coming. Uh, let me give you a sample. If, if you've never, never seen this magazine before, don't, you're still a little skeptical, I'll give you a sample of the kind of information we put in it. Here's a cover from a few years ago. See those babies down there at the bottom? They're twins. <laughs> One of the questions that Christians have, and this, this is it's a great question, how do Christians explain the difference in skin shade? Because the Bible says that we all go back through the Tower of Babel back to Noah and originally become from Adam and Eve, then how do Christians explain the differences in skin shade, right? That's a good question. You got to know there's an answer when. Here's what the article looked like. Here's, here's the parents up here in the right-hand corner. A middle brown mom, a middle brown dad had a black baby and a white baby in the same generation. You got to know there's an answer when a middle brown couple, Adam and Eve were probably middle brown. The, the population at Babel, about 100 years after the flood, was probably middle brown. And from a middle brown couple, you can get the entire variation in skin shade. That's the kind of thing we put in the magazine. Isn't that cool? Here's the twins when they were, I think they were eight, eight or nine when that was taken a few years ago. And, and somebody asked, well, are they identical twins? Well, no. It's, it's, it's genetics. It's how it works. But... Anyways, if, if you're a book person, that'd be my number one recommendation. Get that magazine into your home. If you're a book person, I'd recommend this one. Actually, I'd still recommend the magazine, but get this one. Why this one, the Creation Answers book? Because in one book, you're getting answers to more than 60 of the most asked questions. Does God exist? Where would the different races come from? How did, where did all the water come from for a flood? What about an ice age? What about dinosaurs? Etc. Etc. All covered in one book. It's our most popular book. There's another kind of answers book that we have up here as well called Christianity for Skeptics. Now, this is not a creation book. This deals with other attacks on Scripture and refutes those. Give you a lot of good information to have uh, you know, productive conversations with people at work or at school who are not believers. And we've put those in a pack. We call it the faith-building pack. There's, there's magazine-style books for youth up here. If you want to study Genesis in more detail, get the commentary the Genesis account, then this is the one for you. And uh, it covers Genesis 1 to 11. It has the theology and the science that supports what the text says all in one volume. I call it the Rolls-Royce of creation books because you get the theology and the science in a single resource. Uh, if, if you're looking, on the other hand, for the science, you want the science that refutes evolution, then get this one here. This is the one for you. Evolution's Achilles Heels. It's authored by nine PhD scientists that totally blow evolution out of the water scientifically. 
gives you a lot of great points to talk about with people at, at work or at school, again, who are sold out to the evolutionary idea, or maybe some of you here are, then I'd recommend that book. Or there's a DVD as well. We interview 15 PhD scientists in the DVD. And there's other massive things like this. This is, um, this is if you're really serious or, or slightly nuts. Um, it's a huge pack, a very large pack of both books and DVDs. Everything I mentioned is in that pack, and we've put a massive discount on it, over $330 worth of resources for just under 200 There's other packs as well, kids' packs, uh, a whole creation seminar on DVD. But you don't need to spend a penny this morning to get information. And I'm serious. You don't need to spend anything. Remember that crazy long website name we said when we started? There's over 10,000 articles. Cost you nothing. You can read for months and not reach the end of it. And you can watch my TV show. I do a weekly half-hour TV show that's broadcast around the world. So it's a, it's a half-hour talk show on creation evolution. I host that along with others. You don't need satellite, don't need cable TV. It's called Creation Magazine Live, and you can watch it on our website. There's over 150 episodes online right now, and we're, we're shooting season seven of that show. We're putting more up all the time. Huh. Biblical creation, science, and your spiritual growth. I hope that was encouraging for you this morning. There are answers to questions that hinder spiritual growth. Move forward. Get some of these answers to your kids and grandkids. That's what we want to do. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that there are answers today to questions that many people have about the accuracy of your word. And I pray that the folks here would make use of some of these resources, equip themselves, equip the next generation, that many would come to know your son Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.